You're listening to episode 18 of the Secret Origins podcast, which does not cover issue 18 of Secret Origins. It actually covers the first annual. See, the way I'm setting the... Stop, 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 stop the music, stop. So, this episode is about the Secret Origins annual issue 1, which covered the origins of the Doom Patrol and Captain Comet. And I'm doing it here now as episode 18 because the issue came out after issue 17. So this is going to throw the numbers off from here on out, but whatever. We're just going to roll with it. It's not difficult to follow. (sighs) Okay, whatever. Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and I'm pleased to welcome Doug Zavisha back to the show to talk about the Doom Patrol. Thanks for coming back again, Doug. Thank you, sir. And Doom Patrol, yeah! (laughs) You know, it occurred to me that I kind of made you pay your dues. You know, before we could get to this one, I made you talk about the Challengers, I made you talk about Dead Man, before I would let you talk about the one that you really wanted to, to cover all along. That, that's all right. It's well worth it, in my opinion. <laughs> um, well, folks, like we just said, Doug and I are going to cover the Doom Patrol story in Secret Origins Annual Number 1. Later this episode, Kyle Benning will be back to talk about the Captain Comet backup story. But before we get to any of that sweet superhero goodness and explanation of this series, Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And if I'm wrong about this part, someone will tell me. But I can't think of another issue that featured a lengthy text piece by anybody other than Roy Thomas talking about the stars of the issue, their past and their future. But that's what we get in this one, isn't it? Yes, it is. Nice, juicy piece from Joey Cavallari right there. Right, sort of uh, really hyping up the new book that was to come out after this. Which yeah. is actually, it, it was one of the better things that this book did was set up an upcoming story. That's what I was thinking after reading this and writing up my synopsis, and, and I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out there anyway. It's less a secret origin, and it's more like a history of the DC Universe starring the Doom Patrol. I would agree with that, and I definitely think we will come back to that idea a little bit later on. Before we get into the real uh, the real story here, Doug, your blog is called My Greatest Adventure 80. I'm sure that's just a coincidence, right? You're not really a fan of the Doom Patrol, are you? Not a... Yeah. <laughs> How did that happen? How did you become a fan of these characters? Um, well, roundabout, I don't even know what year it was when I actually started that, to be honest with you. But leading up to it a bit, I had discovered, and I'm going to name drop because, you know, nobody knows who Rob Kelly is, but there's this <laughs> Rob Kelly guy who runs a site called Namor Shrine. And I was talking to Rob for a little bit, and he said something to the effect of, you know, 
we were, we were talking about starting a blog and I was interested in doing that type of thing. And he was just, we were talking back and forth about characters and he says, well, who's your favorite character? And I said, well, you know, the, Wally West at the time was one of the most active favorite characters because mm-hmm. Firestorm wasn't doing anything. Aquaman is, he's Aquaman right. and he's already taken. And, uh, well, Doom Patrol was not doing anything. And so I'm talking to Rob about that. And well, Wally West was covered by, you know, half a dozen flash sites out there, several of them of note. And Rob mentioned, well, Firestorm is about to be covered or is just started to be covered. I, it was it was right, seems to me like it was right around the time Firestorm fan was starting up. So noodled on it a little bit. And I, I actually started a, a Red Tornado blog. And Red Tornado is even less active than all the others. <laughs> and it, at, at one point while working on some Red Tornado stuff, I became aware of, and this might throw some age on this, over on MySpace, Matthew <laughs> Clark was posting some stuff about an upcoming Doom Patrol series. Oh, yeah. So I reached out to Matthew and started talking to him a bit, and he shared, he was gracious enough to share some sketches. And I thought, you know what? Let's do this. Let's Doom this. Hmm. So I started the uh, the Doom Patrol blog. Well, given that this is an audio podcast, the uh, listeners could not see what my face did when you first said a Red Tornado blog. But uh, I'm pretty sure everybody did the same. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know something about. I don't, I'm not even going to get sidetracked. I, mean, I don't. <laughs> any character can be great if you if he's treated well. Um, yes, I, I know there are good Red Tornado stories. I've read good Red Tornado stories. So, yeah, so you started the Doom Patrol blog. Did it start off as an indexing blog? I mean, were you going from, like, their first appearances on, or how did you no, approach it? No, no, no. It was, uh, it was just a, a mash of mm-hmm. basically anything. And what I was trying to do is trying to theme some ideas through it. And one of the ideas that I threw out there was, in almost all of her time in publication, you know, with the Doom Patrol, Rita Farr was referred to as Elastigirl. And it's, you know, this series is from the 60s when you had concepts of a Gal Friday type of thing. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that came to mind right away was, well, I'm going to do Gal Fridays mm-hmm. and some way, shape or form. I'll feature Rita there because she's kind of a, a beloved character. You know, most anybody that's a Doom Patrol fan knows Rita or, you know, I'm sure Shag had a crush on Rita at some point <laughs> knowing Shag. And so I just started tinkering around a bit and having reached out to Matthew Clark, he was very generous in his time. I uh, did, a couple segments that I called five quick questions with, and I would ask Matthew certain things about his work with doom patrol and certain characters. And he would provide, you know, sketches or concepts that he was working on. And, uh, it really just kind of got into an appreciation of doom patrol and, and trying to help give it a signal boost. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm sure that my doom patrol blog had far fewer followers than anybody going out to Google and typing doom patrol. So it was just a celebration of a joy really. I definitely know what you mean about approaching that with a theme because when I started my Black Canary blog, Flowers and Fishnets, I had a Trauma Tuesday section where every Tuesday I had a picture of Black Canary being knocked unconscious because in every single one of her Golden Age appearances, she got knocked unconscious at some point. (laughs) um, Yeah, just before we started recording this, it... I had this weird flash of insight where I remembered where I got this uh, Doom Patrol comic. And this might have been the first time I read about the Doom Patrol. Um, And it was almost nine, eight years ago, maybe. 
Um, I had seen them like in other stories. I kind of I knew who they were just sort of in the ether, um, but I hadn't ever read a Doom Patrol story. And this comic came into my possession kind of in a strange way um, because my wife at the time, girlfriend or fiance, had inherited this collection of comics. It was only about 20 books from her uncle who had died in a fire many years before. Um, But this was like one of his possessions that were left behind that wasn't destroyed was just this small stack of comics. Um, So she had it and she never really gave much thought to it. Um, But when we first started dating, she knew how much I liked comics. So she showed me the collection. A lot of them were like old Whitman publication, like reprints or, or tales of like, they were either cartoon, like Bugs Bunny, like books, or they were like literary translations, like Treasure Island and stuff like that. Um, but there were a few, like, interspersed, like, Marvel and DC books. Like, there was a, a terribly beat-to-hell copy of Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 3, which I think had a reprinting of the origin of Doctor Strange. Um, wow. Really cool comic, completely beat-to-crap. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I don't know if that comic today should be worth money, but I know the version that, that I got <laughs> does, isn't worth anything. Right. Um, but the one DC book that she had was this Secret Origins Annual Number One, starring the Doom Patrol. Wow. Um, and I looked at the cover and I was like, "Wow, this looks really, really interesting." And just like my, I just focused right on Robot Man, and I was like, "I, I couldn't remember ever seeing this character, but I was like, I, I love the look of this guy. This is beautiful." Yeah. Um, and I think I, I probably read this story twice. And didn't even register that it was John Byrne. I think like my eyes just kind of glossed over that part, like wow. of the credits. And it, like didn't no idea what I was reading. Let's talk a little bit about where these characters came from and their publication history. Does that sound good? Sure thing. All right. The Doom Patrol first appeared in the anthology book My Greatest Adventure, issue 80, which was cover dated June 1963, but actually would have gone on sale on April 18th, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. That release date, by the way, is two and a half months earlier than the release of X-Men Issue 1, a comic that the Doom Patrol was often, and I think unfairly, compared to. With sales plummeting on My Greatest Adventure, DC editor Murray Boltonoff reached out to writer Arnold Drake and asked for an idea for a superhero that would save the book. Drake came back the next day with a partially formed idea for the Doom Patrol, a group of angry heroes, full of resentment that the world treats them as freaks instead of icons. Murray Boltonoff liked the idea, but Drake hadn't figured out all of the characters or the story yet, and he only had a weekend to complete the first script. So Drake sought out the help of Bob Haney. Yes, for listeners, zany Bob Haney, who helped Drake round out the cast. Drake and Haney divided the scripting duties on the first story while Boltonoff brought in artist Bruno Primiani, who had spent most of his career prior to that drawing Tomahawk at DC. The Doom Patrol starred in the lead feature in My Greatest Adventure for the next six issues. In 1964, My Greatest Adventure was retitled Doom Patrol with issue 86. So I guess the concept worked. Doom Patrol ran until issue 121 in 1968, at which point... The characters died. Yes, the members of the team were killed off in their last Silver Age appearance. They stayed away, except in reprints, for nearly ten years. Then in 1977, Paul Kupperberg and Joe Staten revived the concept with a mostly new cast of characters in a three-issue trial and showcase. 
They failed to get a new series of their own, but the new Doom Patrol continued to pop up from time to time in issues of Superman Family and the daring new adventures of Supergirl. After the Crisis on Infinite Earths, the original Doom Patrol members appeared in a flashback during Changeling Story in Teen Titans Spotlight No. 9. After that, their next appearance was this issue, Secret Origins Annual No. 1, which set the table of the post-Crisis Doom Patrol that would launch its own new series a few months later. Where did the characters go from there, Doug? Uh, from there, the post-Crisis Doom Patrol starts, as you mentioned, just a couple months after this annual Doom Patrol number one starts with uh, Paul Kupperberg and Steve Lytle. Um, Lytle's kind of a dynamic shift when comparing him to Byrne. Mm-hmm. And then even more dynamic later on in the run um, on Doom Patrol when Lytle was replaced by Eric Larson. Yes, Savage Dragons, Eric Larson. Uh, Lytle has a very realistic style. Larson, not so much. <laughs> uh, at that point, there was a... Pretty dynamic sway in readership, and by sway I mean a lot of readers left, and uh, the title started to flag a little bit. So, with Invasion, uh, the wonderful DC event Invasion coming along, DC saw a chance to kind of give soft reboots or hard reboots or complete restarts to a bunch of titles, one of which happened to be Doom Patrol, and some fellow named Grant Morrison came along and took the reins of Doom Patrol. Uh, he started with, I believe, Doom Patrol number 19, continued on for somewhere, and the numbers are not ingrained in my brain right now because, quite honestly, I never really finished the Morrison run. Uh, but Morrison was eventually replaced by, or moved off the book, and then Rachel Pollock came on. And I do believe she finished the series. I'd have to double-check my facts on that one, but there you go with the Doom Patrol, then... They vertigoized during Morrison's run uh, as one of the kind of flagship titles of the Vertigo imprint. Mm -hmm. Yes, kids, Vertigo didn't always exist. (laughs) And after Morrison's run, it was quite a few years before the next Brave Souls took on the Doom Patrol, at which point Doom Patrol fell under John Arcudi and Tan Ang Huat, who at the time was a brand new artist. And that was in... 2001 and that run started off with doom patrol being apparently purchased by Thayer Jost. the Thayer Jost purchase of the doom patrol brand included robot man once again who is the only through line of every uh version of the doom patrol including that one introduced or not introduced but recapped here in the the secret origins annual uh the doom patrol that Cupperberg reintroduced and showcased the original doom patrol And eventually, from this annual, John Byrne would find his way back to the Doom Patrol, and he launched a Doom Patrol series that ignored absolutely everything prior. In 2004, that series lasted for 18 issues, at which point Infinite Crisis came along, did a little continuity punching, put everything back that fans liked about the Doom Patrol, setting up uh, Keith Giffen and Matthew Clark for a run that launched in 2009. Uh, That run was preempted by Flashpoint. Some debate as to whether or not sales were going to kill that run, but uh, that was a pretty solid run. It, It had a lot of concepts and actually did a lot of work to connect all the different versions of Doom Patrol. I read the first three issues of that run. 
Um, and I was really digging it, but for just various reasons, I couldn't stick with it. So I felt bad because I, I, I did get the impression that the series wasn't long for this world, that it was probably going to get canceled anyway. But I really dug the issues that I was reading. I thought those were great, those first issues by Giffen and, and Clark. Yeah, and I, I believe they've collected most of that series in trade paperback form. I think so, too. The Doom Patrol number one that follows this Secret Origins annual was the first Doom Patrol number one ever. So here's a, a mm. property that's been around since, what did we 63, say? 63, so right? we're talking about 23, 24 years. And, and that original series got up to 124 because they did three issues of reprints after killing the, the original team in 121, mm-hmm. but they never actually had an issue number one. Good point. All right. Well, folks, we're going to take a break to play some promos, you know, to share some love with the podcasting community. But when we come back, we're talking about the origin of the Doom Patrol. Hey, Mike. Okay, Paul. What you doing? Um, uh, waiting. Waiting for what? Uh, Doom Patrol to, to come back. Doom Patrol. Negative Man. Elastigirl. Robot Man. Someone wants the Doom Patrol reunited. Mind if I wait with you? Uh, sure, sure, yeah. Hey, Mike. Y- yeah, Paul. Um, can we talk while we wait? Um, sure. Um, uh, what what shall we talk about, Paul? Uh, Doom Patrol? Yeah, okay. Waiting for Doom, a Doom Patrol podcast, weekly on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Podbean.com. Hope it's not too long away. Well done, my Doom Patrol. Well done. It is too late for you, Calder. Your beloved patrol is doomed. talking about Secret Origins Annual Number 1. It came out on May 26, 1987, sporting a preposterous $2 price tag and featuring a cover by John Byrne. What do you think of this cover? This cover is amazing as far as my, uh, where was I at this time, 15-year-old brain was concerned. I latched into this cover, like you, saw Robot Man, Mm -hmm. was pulled in. And I think, I'm trying to recall exactly where my X-Men experience was to this point. I think John Byrne was pretty fairly recent in my brain, having read some of the stuff, but not necessarily new on the racks and recognizing the very distinct John Byrne cheekbones. (laughs) I latched onto this, picked it up. And I honestly think I bought number one before this, but once I saw this, there was no way it wasn't going home using robot man to split it, balancing the two teams. Thankfully with the negative being there helping you out. 
Right. And uh, using both Joshua and Arani to balance off Rita and Chief was just absolute brilliant. Wait a minute. There's a second story in this? <laughs> there is indeed. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't imagine that John Byrne really cared about Captain Comet when he was designing this cover. Well, he did a nice job of balancing out the uh, the UPC code or the, on my version, it's a direct market. So it's got who watches the Watchmen slug down there. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, I got the, the UPC. Well, do you want to tell our listeners the origin or, as you've already described it, more or less the history as told of the Doom Patrol? Indeed, I will. And I will keep from going word for word only because this is a very wordy recap, folks. You are definitely getting your $2 worth. The lead story is, I believe, 29 pages long. And it's not a single sit 29 pages. Like if you're just hoping to bust this off while waiting to be called into a doctor's office, unless you have a long wait or, you know, uh, trying to do a quick read before going to bed, it's not going to be a quick read. But it's a very satisfying read and very detailed. Um, I'm going to start by noting that prior to recapping this, on the uh, the second page, there's a nice created by acknowledgement that cites Drake and Primiani, as we've already discussed, as the primary creators of the Doom Patrol, or those who are more often than not cited as being most influential in the Doom Patrol's existence. But the creator box also cites Bob Haney, Murray Boltonoff, Paul Kupperberg, and Joe Staten. Uh, the latter two, as you mentioned, Ryan, in your recap, brought us the more worldly Doom Patrol in Showcase uh, in the late 70s. Additionally, there's that four-page text piece that we talked about by Joey Cavallari with preview art from Doom Patrol number one. No mention there of why Byrne was chosen for this adventure or why Lytle was not. But Byrne clearly was a fan of the book, having drawn most of the related who's who entries for the Doom Patrol and their foes to this point. Um, additionally, Byrne had drawn two covers for a publication, the official Doom Patrol Index that was published in 1986, uh, that ties the Doom Patrol together with the Teen Titans. Getting to the actual proper recap of the story, it opens with narration from a shrouded figure who's reflecting as he walks through Midway City. There's a building that is familiar to the cloaked figure, but his entry activates an interesting security system named Waldo. The voice and photograph, as Waldo says, match that of Cliff Steele. Monitored remotely, a third party is only moderately disappointed, and on page three, panel one, we see the third party at first uh, lab, well, apparent lab coat over... Uh, business formal, and it's a lady's hand with a bracelet on it saying, the old Doom Patrol mansion is in Midway. I've been waiting for this. We can only hope it is, ah, oh, no, almost, almost as good, Cliff Steele. I don't know who the no, uh, almost, and we'll come back to that one because I've got ideas. So from here, we get into the actual system check that Waldo performs on Robot Man to verify that he is indeed Cliff Steele and challenges him to present his origin or his take on his origin. And what happens is, rather than use rounded corners for flashbacks, Byrne was pretty subtle in that he just made the flashback panels have a heavier border on them, not rounded corners as one might expect. So Cliff recalls his origin as a race car driver and is then 
shortly after prompted to tell the origin of Niles Calder, because after all, everybody knows Cliff Steele's origin. Niles Calder will be the real proof of secret identity. So Cliff retells the origin of Niles Calder, also known as the Chief, as further proof of Cliff's own identity. Cliff shares what he knows, which kind of paints Calder as a a creepy fellow. Uh, On page six of this origin, and as I mentioned, it's very dense, Uh, but on page six, it talks about how Calder was caring for this teenage girl, only to fall madly in love with her. And Calder's got, like, full beard and the keywords here being teenage girl. Anyway, it's just a, a little offsetting and kind of paints or sets up the Niles Calder that uh, everyone comes to know later on in the Morrison run, really. How come a May-December romance oh. that has this sort of romantic tinge to it? That, that, but when you just adjust a few things in the timeline, then all of a sudden it's a crime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a little more than May-December. It's like, like May of last – or two or three <laughs> years from now and last December – the key difference here is probably a 30-year age gap. <laughs> it, it's got to be. I mean, once – if you get any deeper into the, the Doom Patrol's history or their adventures or, you know, Calder's adventures as uh, Cliff continues to relate here, you realize that he's probably not fresh out of school at this point and that he's got, probably got a few years on his, uh, his tires there. Anyway, that teenager was Arani uh, or Arani. Forgive me if I'm pronouncing it wrong. I don't know any Iranis or Annies, but I see it as being similar to Andrea or Andrea. could probably be pronounced either. And seeing as she's the one that owns the name, she's the one that's going to pronounce it right. We've never had a live action Irani, so I'm going to say Irani. Anyway, Irani is also known as Celsius. And through Cliff's stories, we learn of Calder's continued adventures, including trying to keep Irani's existence secret. Uh, so Cliff continues to regale Waldo giving Byrne a chance to draw the chief's uh, fateful confrontation with General Immortus, at that point just referring to him as Immortus, from Doom Patrol number 88. Uh, it's kind of a different take on the, the scene, and it's definitely more dynamic. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is in the surprint for the chief in Byrne's who, who's, who's Who entry for the chief from, you know, that's covered somewhere else on some other podcast or something maybe so the the third party the mystery organization that's been kind of behind waldo and driving cliff's exploration of the origins is stalling for time and they ask cliff to reveal the origin of larry trainer just as one more step and cliff reluctantly does so realizing that as he's remembering all this it's causing a lot of pain for his his poor human brain and his emotions that are still stuck within this robot body. He can't weep outwardly, but it's certainly giving him some struggle to get through this. So Cliff reveals the origin of Larry Trainer, uh, which John Byrne lifts bits of from DP, uh, DP, Doom Patrol 107, and embellishes it, really making it his version of Larry Trainer's story. Um, not quite his version that would come later on, but certainly a more, at the time of 1987, more modern take on the tale. Uh, so that mysterious organization now has troops closing in on Robot Man within the Doom Patrol's headquarters. And Waldo, uh, yes, I am using air quotes when I say Waldo from this point going forward, relieves Cliff from telling any more origin stories or sharing any more memories. That doesn't stop Cliff, however. And this being an era 
when comics weren't afraid of thought balloons, readers learn about Rita Farr, the original Elastigirl. Not the one from The Incredibles, the original Elastigirl. Robot Man provides an explanation for Rita's joining the team uh, and then recounts the team's introductions to one another and brief rundown of their foes leading right to the encounter with Captain Zal and Madame Rouge, where the original Doom Patrol give their lives to save Codsville, Maine, a fishing village of 14 individuals. And uh, the Cliff's bit that here, as far as Rita, he says she still looked normal, but she couldn't deal with not being perfect no more. So that kind of gives the insight, the psychology behind Rita being on the team of freaks. All right. So Cliff continues his reflection. And in his uh, final reflection, Cliff recalls the fate that he endured, endured through, you know, basically blowing up with his friends. So Kupperberg and Byrne use that to shift gears a little bit. And they return to the headquarters where we learn the lady calling the shots behind that mysterious organization is none other than Valentina Vostick, the negative woman. She reflects her way through the formation of the second Doom Patrol. Created by Paul Kupperberg and Joe Statton, that Doom Patrol meets and fights Cliff Steele before working with him to battle Immortus, the oh-so-creative and not-at-all-derivative Cossack, who is on a quest to reclaim Valentina Vostick for her homeland, and Reactron, a battle that occurred in the pages of The Daring New Adventures of Supergirl. But as this is post-crisis, when this issue comes out, prior to the eventual return of Supergirl, which John Byrne had a hand in, Copperberg and Byrne, rather than eliminate the adventure altogether, decide that that story was at least worth a panel, and they insert Power Girl, which is just enough to encourage continuity-related aneurysms <laughs> all over the place. And I think they're still kind of happening to folks. Uh, I don't even want to think about it. It, <laughs> it is a, it is an interesting, uh, an interesting little continuity fix. Yes, it is. And, and one that could have worked mm-hmm. if they didn't go ahead and try and, as you uh, alluded to, adjust power girls origins as well. I think Byrne could have just drawn the doom patrol fighting reactron. And I think you're right. But, as with the next panel. In the next panel, it uh, parallels their appearance in DC Comics Presents number 52, wherein Ambushbug was introduced. Ambushbug isn't shown here, and it's really just Superman and, and Negative Woman, so they're able to leave it a little more wide open due to what Byrne has chosen to draw here and chosen not to draw. They go on uh, to continue the, the exploration of the new Doom Patrol's uh, adventures, which was really only three issues of showcase. So there's not a whole lot to share. Burn gets into the person or burn and Kupperberg get into the personalities and the conflicts around those personalities a bit. And then there's a, a panel that's given to uh, the appearance of robot man in new teen Titans, where they go after Zal and Rouge, hopefully to take them down forever. All right. So cliff discovers that it's Vostok behind everything. And the two share a quick, proto-Skype conversation before Cliff heads back out into the streets, just missing a chance to stroll down memory lane in Midway City with none other than Paul Kupperberg and John Byrne, who Byrne drew into this issue on the final page. Byrne would return in August of 88 for part two of a crossover between Superman and Doom Patrol, uh, the first part appearing in Doom Patrol number 10, second part in Superman number 20, 
where the the team and Superman fight against Metallo. So a little bit of a gap, but it gives Byrne a chance to draw the Doom Patrol again. And then he, as I mentioned earlier, he comes back again in 2004 when everything goes to hell. <laughs> anyway, so that's the recap of this issue. And right immediately following that, you get a four-page preview, four pages of insight from Joey Cavallari regarding the new Doom Patrol series that's set to launch shortly after this issue hits the stands. Now, given that newsstands still had comics at the time, if you bought this new, as I did, you may have gotten number one before you got this and were able to go back and find it. But if you somehow got this issue prior to number one, you get some amazing preview on Steve Lytle's art for what's going to be coming up in that number one. And it's in color Mm -hmm. alongside a text piece, which is just phenomenal. And Lytle is no... He's no slouch when it comes to drawing. I would compare him detail level to George Perez. Uh, He tends to be a little more animated in his figure work. And by animated, I mean cartoony, Um, not necessarily animated figures. And as mentioned on the Waiting for Doom podcast, Lytle's artwork really comes across as very promotional for a line of action figures that simply never happened. So there you have it. That's the Doom Patrol story from Secret Origins Annual number one. And as I mentioned at the top of this, it's less a Secret Origins and more a history of the DC Universe starring the Doom Patrol. I absolutely love this story. <laughs> it is, it is, um, it, it's not the most Doom Patroliest of Doom Patrol stories in that uh, it seems like they almost chose to ignore some of the more bizarre aspects of any uh, occurrence of the Doom Patrol, such as I've heard it pronounced Gargwax, I've heard it pronounced Gargoyle. So, well, you know, the big giant green alien. There are so many French villains in this thing. I think yes. we've got the alien, let's just go ahead and call him Gargwax. All right. <laughs> but it, It's great in that it's a nice recap. It's a very solid zero-type issue that sets up Kupperberg's run nicely. But what Kupperberg did in his run continues what was started here in that he kind of forsakes the the bizarre wonkiness and wackiness that uh, were inherent in Drake's Drake and Premiani's run mm-hmm. um, to the point where in the forward of the fourth, yeah, the fourth volume of the Doom Patrol archives, Kupperberg recounts a meeting that he had with Drake in March of 2004 Uh, where he said, you know, he had a chance to make Drake, or to meet Drake, rather. And he says that he said to Arnold Drake, I really regret that I messed with the Doom Patrol. It was perfect the way you set it up. Changing it was a big mistake. The next part is key. Arnold was gracious, shrugging as if to say, what are you going to do? Not an actual quote there, (laughs) but just kind of shrugging it off like, eh, yeah, you did. Or, eh. Not a big deal. Or, eh, I'm still getting a check. Right. You can interpret that however you want. Exactly. I mean, it could just be the shrug of a veteran who's been there before and just said, you made your decisions. You can't change anything. So, Right. And, and from Kupperberg's run, Morrison kind of tried to get back into the wackiness, but he, he took the wackiness to a completely different level. Yeah. I've read some of the I've read the like the first part of Morrison's run. There's a lot about it that I do like, but 
it's one of those things where it that belongs in its own little pocket universe in the, in the DC multiverse. I, I guess I can't argue that too much. I really liked this story the first time I read it. And the more I grew to to understand the characters, and especially after I got the Doom Patrol Archives Volume 1, and the more I saw how Drake and Primiani set up these characters and that sort of wackiness, twisted ideas that you were kind of touching on, the less I liked this origin in retrospect. There are aspects of it that I like. Um, I like the whole setup. I like... I, I mean, it, it is kind of weird that Cliff is narrating this origin story to a security system as if it, as if they don't have any better way of identifying him. Right. Um, it is a bit of a conceit, but it's still... It, it, there's enough of enough interest there, and I do I, I like the story most of all when Byrne is actually flushing out these stories when he's diving into them when we see Cliff Steele getting in his race car and it's spinning yes. out of control and crashing and him waking up with these robot hands. Um, I love when again I. I there are times when I'm, I'm like, why, why did John Byrne draw this? Like, he was doing two Superman books at the time. He had plenty on his plate. Like, this is such a weird little deviation for his schedule. And I guess it comes back to what you said. He must have just loved these characters and this concept. That's why he kept drawing them on, on uh, Who's Who whenever he got the chance. But, the like, the flashback parts, when we see uh, the, the story of the Chief and General Immortus, that's great. When we see like um, Larry Trainer's story and how he's crashing when we see Rita Farr's story. I love all of that. Um, and I just, I really dig that original cast, those first four. And then when we get to the the new group that, uh, that Staten and Kupperberg introduced, I just, I, I wasn't feeling, I, I've only read those, their appearances in those Supergirl stories. Um, so I don't know them quite as well, but comparatively they felt very generic they felt it felt like he was trying to do oh we need the the sort of multicultural team because that's what the x-men set up really well so we're doing more of that but you've also you've got negative woman who's okay she turns into energy you've got celsius and tempest who both project different types of energy from their hands it all kind of looked and felt very much the same kind of like stock superhero stuff from the 80s or I guess it actually would have been the 70s. Um, and I think it was right. missing the weirdness and the craziness of that original that original cast. Right. So. I, I completely agree. And, and, and this annual, by taking that original cast and abutting them to this cast, mm-hmm. shows kind of the transformation from that wackiness to, as you put it, another generic superhero team mm-hmm. that that seemed to be reactionary to the market. If I could guess, I would probably say that John Byrne didn't like the new cast as much either because on page 26, where he's kind of showing their breakup and everything and all of like the troubles that they went through, you've got four panels that are just kind of broken up. There's a lot of like negative space. So, okay, we're seeing this fracture. We're seeing how, disjointed and and discordant this team is but there's no backgrounds there's uh, all of the detail that john Byrne typically puts into his work and it's it's pretty apparent on every other page well the the page right next to it the single panel following it yeah exactly you just think it's like 
for John Byrne, this page took no time. Yeah. And on one on one level, I can kind of see what he might have been going for. I mean, this this page isn't about the details. This page isn't about them being together or them being in action. This is about this group of characters not working together. Right. Um, and so that's why they're all splintered. That's why they're all so far apart. That's why there's nothing else there. It's just emotion and character. But compared to everything else, it's just like it looks flat. It looks a little bit boring. Oh. It looks tired, which is rather surprising given that those characters only had three issues together. You know, as much as Byrne embellished everything else, he certainly could have embellished this. Yeah. Other notes, uh, specific details about the story? Um, no, I, I think we pretty much touched on it as far as this being a, a transformation issue uh, where it took, you know, it, it set them up to be more uh, worldly, more media savvy. As I touched on, Lytle's going to come along and he's going to make the art just beg to be made into action figures. Mm-hmm. And... and Kupperberg tries to streamline them into another superhero team, which isn't in the Doom Patrol's DNA. Right. Um, in that text piece with uh, the preview art from from Lytle, we actually get the, the two-page fold-out cover for issue one. Yes. Um, which is gorgeous. And I think you're right. Like Lytle was – there are some, some elements of George Perez, but – I think a little bit cartoon, more cartoony might be a good description for that too, and not, not in that kind of animated sense, but a little bit more light, a little bit more... Well, they eventually did make action figures of these on the DC Universe Classics line in the late 2000s. But that was the original cast. Mm-hmm, yeah. They could have kept going. They should, Come on, man! <laughs> um, can I say as ridiculous as it seems... There's something wonderful about Robot Man. Somebody named Robot Man for one thing, but when you get the the sense that he's just he's a human brain in a robot humanoid body, wearing khakis and a polo shirt, yes, walking down the halls of a stately mansion. Yep, yep, <laughs> and and that's something that eventually it, it waxes and wanes with his appearances. Mm-hmm. You know, there are appearances where he won't wear clothing, and then there are appearances like uh, towards the middle of Morrison's run where he's, he's wearing, you know, biker jacket. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when Matthew Clark redesigned him, he gave him uh, biker, sh- like bike shorts, not biker shorts, but bike shorts and would put him in different uh, attire as well. Mm-hmm. But he's still very clearly a robot. <laughs> so we talked uh, about it a little bit with John Byrne. We talked a bit, uh, we talked a little bit about it with the publication release date. I've often heard the Doom Patrol likened to the X-Men. And I see two essential points of comparison. The fact that they are both led by a a kind of genius leader character who is wheelchair-bound. And the fact that these characters are not looked upon as idols or champions in the community, but they're rather treated as freaks and hated. Um, But aside from those and the fact that they came out at the same time... I never really bought into the X-Men comparison. Me either. As soon as I saw like the, this original group of characters and when I kind of got into what they were about, I saw this as a dark, twisted reflection of the Fantastic, Fantastic Four. Four. Yep. Um, you got Chief is 
Reed Richards. He's the big scientific brain. Okay, he's not a man of action. He doesn't really like get in like scrape things up like that. But he is. He's the guy who explains everything, and he's the guy who sets them into action. You've got Cliff Steele is Ben Grimm, you know, Robot Man of the Thing. It's the it's the lovable, fun-loving guy who is just trapped in this hard exterior shell that he cannot get out of, and that creates this distance between him and the rest of the world, but he's still the most human or humane of the bunch. Right. Um, then you've got, uh, you've got the obvious, the, the ladies, Sue Storm and, uh, Rita, you got Invisible Woman, Elastigirl, and then you've got, uh, Johnny and Larry Trainer. They both burst into these energy beings that can fly and they're kind of covered in this ghostly shimmering glow effect. I, I think it's obvious. I think it's, it's the Fantastic Four on a bad dose of shrooms or something. Right. It's, right. And, and I completely agree with you on that one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, prior to really getting deep into the Doom Patrol, I I think I've come across that concept previously. Mm-hmm. People making the argument that, no, it's not the X-Men, and pointing again to the Fantastic Four. But when Kupperberg comes along with the uh, the showcase Doom Patrol, he goes after that X-Men idea. Right. He brings in a Russian. He brings in an Indian. He right. brings in an African-American. It's the multicultural group. They've got elemental-based powers. They're just, you know, kind of shooting all kinds of energy, be it flame or ice or things like that. Yep. Yeah, it definitely they he fosters that X Men comparison, which X Men were huge back then, so it, it was a formula that was often copied. Yep. Um, but going back to the the Fantastic Four idea, have you seen the new movie? I have not. Okay, you're not alone. Because many, many people have not. Um, that seems to be actually a problem for Fox. Um, many people are not <laughs> seeing I haven't either, and I'm not going to. Okay. And I remember, and like, I, I made the decision a year ago that I'm, I was not going to see this movie unless I heard something remarkably positive about it. But when, when they were first kind of talking about the direction that they were going, they kept saying, okay, we're going with this younger cast, and it's going to be dark and more realistic. Hmm. And I said, wow, that sounds like the opposite of what I want from a Fantastic Four movie. Right. But you could take that direction and make a really good Doom Patrol Doom movie. Patrol. Yep. Yep. Because they do feel darker. They do feel more realistic. And, uh, and darker and realistic are I mean, they're inherent in the the doom concept, mm-hmm. whereas your Fantastic Four should be fantastic. Right. <laughs> it should be celebratory and, and fun and, right. you know, and, full of energy and vitality. And they need to go out and do big otherworldly dimensions and weird spheres of outer and inner space. And yes. They need to just do crazy adventures. The Doom Patrol, you can ground on Earth. In fact, you should. You can keep them based on home and... And you can go cheap that way in terms of the production. Yeah. You just have to explain that they're they're dealing with crazy mutant scientists or weirdos who create talking gorillas with machine guns. Or and that's what was extended in the Giffen and Clark run. Exactly. They got back to that core of the concept. Mm-hmm. It's everything that the other studios are doing. Like that, I, I think Marvel, for the most part, is embracing more of that sense of fun 
Although they do, they they they're not above going into some darker territory. But I think Sony and Fox and Warner Brothers are trying to make all of their movies feel as much like The Dark Knight as possible. Right. Which doesn't work for a whole lot of comic book properties. No. It, but, it, but you can it, go there with something like the Doom Patrol. You can get a little darker. You can get a little more more kind of wallowing in, in pity and pathos because that's how the characters feel at first. Right. All of these guys feel like their lives are ruined, that they're coming from this place of destruction. And despair and loneliness and, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and the upside of it is the concept of the Doom Patrol, they find a family connection in that, mm-hmm. in that they're all in that spot. Even Rita, who's still got her outer beauty, yeah, she's just not feeling as perfect as she once did. And that, you know, that gets into all sorts of character study that is just more than welcome to be explored in movies or television or, you know, comics to a lesser degree, it seems like. Right, right. You know, and I think you and I have touched on this before that this is a team who's ready for any other media. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it just needs to be the the right combination to bring them into it. I but think, movies especially. Yeah, I I think I think film would be best um because you would you would want to splurge on some budget issues for Robot Man and for Negative Man. And Monsieur um, Mala. And Monsieur Mala, yeah. Um <laughs> but you also you don't necessarily need the um, the serial storytelling gimmick of you don't. We don't need to see a whole lot of adventures. We don't need to see regular things. We could get one or two great movies with these characters and get enough of what makes them tick. And how crazy, how fantastic would it be if they made a, like a Doom Patrol trilogy or one or two movies and actually killed them off in the last one? Like they did like how how insane is that to like know like in a in a world where nobody stays dead forever in comics that they actually killed off their cast when the book was being canceled? Yeah, just like these characters are going to die, and And they stayed dead for almost the entire time. Yeah, yeah, almost. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they they were brought back in a few little cheats, but they were dead for a long time. And and the fact that the bad guys won in that situation, sort of. I mean, you could call it like a, a moral victory that the Doom Patrol were willing to sacrifice themselves. But the bad guys got away with it and went unpunished for decades. Yes. They ended up getting taken down like 10 or 20 years later by a different team. Yep, yep. <laughs> And I, I just have this vision of uh, Rouge and Zal going to high five and just <laughs> not quite accomplishing it. <laughs> Either they just give up and slump their shoulders, or you know they completely miss the high five. <laughs> you mentioned before we started that you kind of had a, a sort of fan cast in mind for well, for what might be of a, a live action version of the Doom Patrol. And you and I have discussed actually with Dead Man and with Challengers. These are really better properties beyond comics. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly true, as we've already mentioned here. And there are some characters with the Doom Patrol that I struggled with a bit. But very confidently, I can say that if Arani were in it, you'd have Rekha Sharma. I, I cannot, for the life of me, not put J.K. Simmons in the chief's chair. Mm, I can see I, that. I, I know that's probably not the right call, mm-hmm. but... It just seems so perfect. I, I would love it. I mean, 
he, he's one of those actors. I mean, if you can forget about him as Jay Jonah and you actually yes. look at how good and how talented he is. And I, I think anybody who saw, oh, crap, what was the movie last year? Academy Award winning. What was yeah. It? I'm blanking on it, too. <laughs> With Flash. With Flash. There you go. Yeah, I can't believe it. Yeah, anybody who saw that knows. Yeah, he, I mean, he would be great in anything. Yep. So. Um, Rita... Rita gave me a lot of trouble because I, I I want someone who's timeless mm-hmm. um, in her appearance, but you could go a couple different ways with this. You could go with somebody who maybe once was timeless, but is maybe starting to show a little tread on the tire, mm-hmm. like a Courtney Cox or a Gina Davis, mm-hmm. okay. or and this is just going to uh, more modern consumption, I guess. Mm-hmm. Haley Atwell. She's good. She's good. She's just about a perfect yeah. visual Rita. Mm-hmm. Um, with Larry, I went for Josh Holloway. I okay. think he'd carry that smarminess. And, uh, you know, if we don't see him the whole time, that's all right. The voice still works. <laughs> and, and I really, really struggled to find someone who was a dynamic actor that could portray Cliff prior to the car accident or however they choose to disfigure him in the movie. Or not disfigure, but you know, oh, I, all but end him. I think you got. I mean, that's that's you could have like a whole NASCAR tie and get all like have like the the promotional buzz that. I mean, yeah, race car driving NASCAR that is huge right now. That would be an easy like an adaptation into a movie. I am again going to ask why are we not working in DC's market? Because <laughs> they did a, a couple years ago. They did that with the new Fifty Two. They tried to promote the Justice League through NASCAR. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe they wouldn't want to associate themselves with a hero who loses his entire body in a race car crash. Well, you know, these things happen. Right. But but they could show him driving again at the end of the movie or something. <laughs> yes. You know, he, he's not afraid. It's a sport for whatever. Right. So who did you have in mind for him? Um, actually, I went with Corey Stoll. Oh, okay. Not, not based necessarily on his portrayal of... Uh, Darren Cross right, right. slash Yellow Jacket, but just he's got physicality. Mm-hmm. He's got a very dry wit to him. Yeah. And the voice. He you does, need somebody who has a strong voice as Robot Man. Right. He does have a great voice. Um, he's not so big that he, he's not such a big actor that you're going to want to see him a lot, which is good because you can't. Um, right. And that's uh, that's an interesting choice. And Mine is slightly related to that. Um, we'll come back. Um, right. Yeah, I I actually I started a Tumblr about this uh, a year ago, maybe more than that, where I was trying to fan cast everybody in the DC universe. All right. Um, and one of the first things that I came to was the Doom Patrol again because I was like, why isn't this a movie yet? My my pick for the chief sort of. Unconventional. I don't know if many people know him. Is an actor named Kieran Hines. He played Julius Caesar in the HBO Rome show. Um, he's been in a bunch of movies, and I can't think of what his what his biggest movie would be or what most people would know him from. Um, but he, he, I mean, he doesn't have red hair and he doesn't have a beard, so he doesn't necessarily have the look. Um, you would kind of have to like prop that up a little bit with makeup and wig effects and everything. But he does have this. This kind of dark intensity where you can look in his eyes and it's like, okay, that guy is really, really smart, and he's probably lying to me, whatever he's saying. All right. So something about his look. I was like, yeah, I want to put him in a movie, and I think he would be a good chief. 
Um, for Robot Man, I went with another actor from Ant-Man, actually. Um, but I went with Bobby Cannavale, who played um, the cop who was uh, right. Scott Lang's ex-wife's new boyfriend. Right, right. Um, and he's an actor that I've liked for a long time. Um, I've seen him on stuff. He was on Boardwalk Empire for a little while. And he's just – he's got this tough guy Brooklyn sort of sensibility to him that I was like, you know what? He could play Robot Man or he could play The Thing, and I would be happy either way. But he's got that sense where it's like, you know what? He's – he, you know, just put him – just use that voice. Use him as like a mocap for however they did the robot suit or something. But, and I think that would be really, really cool. Yeah. Um, for Larry Trainer for Negative Man, that was another one where I was thinking I really wanted a voice with character, but somebody that doesn't have a face that you necessarily really want to like pay money for. <laughs> um, even though this guy isn't unattractive, not at all. Um, but it's a, a small time actor named Rick Gomez, uh, and he was probably the best thing that I think he, people would know him from. It was uh, Band of Brothers. Um, okay. He was just one of the soldiers in that, but um, he he was a communications officer and he could do like impressions of people, really funny character. Uh, and he does like, again, like what you were saying, he has that kind of sardonic wit that right. even if his face is covered in bandages, you can, you can hear the, the smart, the smart assness coming out of it. Yep. Um, with Rita, I kind of struggled because I was like, she needs to look like a movie star. So you need somebody in Hollywood who's just sort of classically beautiful um, and thinking again, a little bit like lesser known, um, I picked uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She's she's nice to look at. She's got a pretty decent resume playing like supporting characters. Um, and again, like I, I think she could go to this weird place where she's she's insecure because Rita is a strange character. Like when she once yes. she learns how to control her powers, like why are you with these guys? There's nothing yep. wrong with you. So you really have to figure out what is inside of her that's kind of broken and why she feels like she belongs on a team with freaks. Right. Um, uh, for General Immortus, I went with uh, Max von Sydow. Um, old, See, I was thinking Christopher Walken. Either one, yeah. Either one of them <laughs> could be great, yeah. It'd be, that would, Christopher Walken would be fantastic, too. Um, for Monsieur Mala, for The Voice, I went with uh, Jean Renault classic French actor. Everybody knows him from the professional and stuff. Oh yeah. Good call. Um, and what, what I actually thought this, this amused me at least. I don't know if anybody else, but I thought this was hilarious for the voice of brain, Alec Baldwin doing a French accent. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I just think that would be great. What, what would have been great. And unfortunately he's not with us is Robin Williams for both of them. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. He could what? do that. Um, and for Gargo or Gargwax, whoever, uh, the actor who played Cousin Otho from Beetlejuice. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and that was, that was pretty much it. A few other lesser knowns, but nothing, nothing really substantive. So. All right. I think, why, I think you, why is this not happening? Again, and I, I think you could get a lot of those actors we mentioned on a modest budget, but this is another property that has, has struggled to find a consistent home in comics. Because they don't fit that that regular superhero world, they're a little bit a little bit unconventional, a little bit unorthodox. There doesn't seem to be a market for them. But you could make a hell of a movie with these guys. Exactly. And and actually, let me go back to the point that I was just making. I think somebody could make a great Doom Patrol comic that would sell really well. This was something that uh, Frank and I talked about years ago. I think was. 
the Doom Patrol is just right for Jeff Johns. At least what Jeff Johns' style was like in 2010 or 2011, because he dealt with a lot of like you know like that darkness and that pathos of giving all of his characters tortured backgrounds. Um, and for a while, it was actually kind of comical how often he would disfigure or mutilate characters in his comics. Right. right. I was like, there's, you know, you know the, the Doom Patrol might actually suit some of his tastes and allow him to excise some of that, some of that darkness in his writing. Then, then he could go back and and add more fun to the Flash and Green Lantern when he was writing and, those guys. And he did get into that a little bit in the Justice League, in issue uh, 24. He had him appear during the Forever Evil storyline. And then he came back to the the Doom Patrol in 30 of that same series. But he never really – he wasn't afforded or didn't seize the opportunity to really expand on the characters at that point, which kind of floats up a balloon of hope that maybe someone else is going to take that ball and run with it. Yeah, I just – I didn't read those issues, but that was one of those things that struck me where – he was introducing the metal men and the doom patrol and all of these other concepts so that they are now his vision in the new 52. So right. now if, if somebody else comes back to them, they're writing from the way he would treat them or the way he introduced them. And it gives him a sense of ownership or propriety. And I just, I, I didn't like that idea. I felt like Jim Lee was already doing that when he just, when he redesigned all of the costumes for the new 52 and it kind of bugged me, but. But I don't know. Again, I didn't read those issues. Maybe they were great. Maybe maybe that he did have a good handle on the characters. They definitely needed more room. Yeah. Uh, and still waiting. <laughs> you know, we didn't get a Doom Patrol book with the new 52, and so far we haven't gotten one with the DCU yet. Well, there's good concepts out there if they would take the chance. Otherwise, take them to another media. I think they would do gangbusters. Definitely. Um, let's switch gears a little bit, just kind of going through some of my questions. Your favorite Doom Patrol member? Robot Man. Pretty obvious. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say that, and it's it's not even close. And, and I would even hazard to say that he might be one of my favorite characters ever. He's just, he's got that design. There are, I've talked about this before and often on this sh- on this show. There are some characters where if I never read a comic with that character, just based on their look, I'm like, yes, that guy is awesome. I want to see more of Robot Man just because of that look. So, um, Your favorite era or your favorite team kind of lineup for the Doom Patrol? Uh, uh, Giffen Clark. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking, you know what, I'm going to have to think about that. But no, I really, really enjoyed the Giffen Clark run. Mm-hmm. And part of that was the... Clark struggled a bit to um, to have a presence in the entire series. Uh, he didn't do every issue start to finish. Um, he got some assists from, I think, Ron Randall. But what Clark did was he, he redesigned the characters. He gave them uh, a modern coat of armor, uh, shined them up a bit, made Robot Man look a little fresher, a little different. Uh, definitely put a different look to Larry. And made Rita, Rita again. Um, and then Giffen just, he explored everything. He dug back into the Arcuity run. Uh, he brought back Animal, animal Vegetable Mineral Man. Uh, just, he was all over the place with it. He even brought... I so want to see that in the movie. Animal Vegetable Mineral Man. There you go. 
How do, how do you not want to see that? It's that, That's the second one. You, you can't put him in the first movie. Like, that's... <laughs> like, it, like, seriously, like, in my mind, when you think of, like, climactic battles against something so absurd... Yes. I would put up the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, <laughs> and then I want to see a Doom Patrol fighting Animal, Vegetable, and Mineral Man. But before they get there, they're going to be fighting a gorilla with a machine gun. <laughs> Come on! With a French accent. Yes! Wearing a beret! <sighs> Perfect. Other thoughts about Doom Patrol? Doom Patrol is awesome. Yeah, it is. Um... Just uh, the other thoughts I have beyond that are just, you know, stories to share. Well, you did – you talked about how much you liked the, the Keith Giffen-Matthew Clark run. Uh, any other recommended readings for people who should be reading Doom Patrol and maybe haven't yet? Yeah, if you don't have the Showcase Presents, get the Showcase Presents uh, volumes one and two. That goes back to all the – I think it's got the two volumes collect almost the entire Drake and Primiani run. Mm-hmm. I honestly don't know because I've got the the archives. Right, right. Um, and if you can get a hold of the archives, I know sometimes at conventions people have archives for like 50% off. I, I looked at I got the first volume archive for under $20. So That's the route I went is I've got all five, mm-hmm. uh, which are kind of – they've got a shelf to themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, definitely the Giffen Clark, definitely the, uh, the archives and or showcase. I would strongly point folks to this origin. You know, it's not necessarily the definitive Doom Patrol, but it is a, a fun story. And like I said, it's transformative and you, from there you can make the choice. You know, do you want to go back and explore Drake and Premiani? Do you want to go forward and see the, this team, uh, kind of heroized through Kupperberg and Lytle. And the other thing that I would point everybody to for the Doom Patrol is there was a couple or maybe three shorts when they were doing the DC Nation cartoon. So everybody's connected. Everybody go out to YouTube, type DC Nation Doom Patrol, and right there you'll get some uh, some fun videos. Oh, I haven't seen those. I'd oh, really they're, they're brilliant. And why DC didn't do more of them? They're numbered weird. Like there's chapters three, seven, and ten. So that makes that makes me think. Well, where's one and two? And but they're not. It's just those random uh, choices, and those align very closely to the original Drake Primiani stories. They were also they were on that episode of uh, Batman: The Brave and the Bold. Yes, where they, they replicated they replicated their death scene when they blow up on the island. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Aside from that, I mean, I, I think Grant Morrison has six trade paperbacks his run is collected in. Something yeah, like and that. I think they did one of those omnibus. They, yeah, I bet they probably did too. And that's, I mean, it doesn't feel so much like classic Doom Patrol heroic stuff. It feels a lot more like weird Vertigo Grant Morrison inventing crazy concepts like Scissor Men and stuff like that. Yes, um, but it's. They're good stories. I mean, I don't know if they'll give you the flavor of what uh, Arnold Drake and Bob Haney envisioned when they created the team, but fun stories all around. So, yeah. Any last thoughts on Doom Patrol? Um, I'm not posting as regularly to uh, my greatest adventure 
ad.blogspot.com, but I do still occasionally get out there when something really doomy happens. I would I'd definitely point everybody towards the Waiting for Doom podcast. Yep. That's a fun little listen. Definitely those two gentlemen are very passionate about the, the Doom Patrol as well. And with regards to, uh, as I mentioned, I don't post to My Grace Adventure as often as I should. I am going to be trying to get rolling on Tales of My Greatest Strange Adventures.blogspot.com. Um, that's where I'm going to be going with most of my bloggery, whether it's Red Tornado, Doom Patrol, anything else that strikes my fancy. Challengers. Challengers, definitely. <laughs> Dead Man. Dead Man. Uh, maybe some other Arnold Drake creations or inspirations. Well, thank you. It's great to have you on the show, as always. Thanks, Ryan. It was good to be here again. All right, folks, don't go away, because we've got another Secret Origin coming up after this promotional break. Hey, kids. Do you like comics? Uh-huh. Do you like Iron Man comics? Uh-huh. Do you want to learn more about Iron Man's downward spiral from alcoholism, fear of commitment, and feelings of inferiority leading the egomaniac into a life of misery? Uh, what? Then listen to the Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition and see Tony Stark go from genius billionaire playboy philanthropist to genius billionaire playboy philanthropist with awesome weaponized armor. Relive classic stories like Demon in a Bottle, Armor Wars, Doom Quest, and more, hosted by me, Mike Staley. So how about it, kids? Do you want to listen to the Invincible Iron Cast? Uh-huh. Well, too bad. You need to do your homework. Uh-huh. The Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition, on iTunes or at invincibleironcast.podbean.com. Hey, Secret Admirers, it's Ryan. Just giving you a heads up about the sound quality of the following segment. Or, sadly, the lack of quality. Because I can sometimes be an idiot, I waited until the last minute to schedule a recording session with Kyle Benning. Because somehow I thought we already recorded this session. Between recording several episodes of Star Wars and G.I. Joe podcasts with Kyle, I completely forgot that we never recorded Captain Comet until the last minute. Well, that poor scheduling on my part compounded with an unfortunate situation on Kyle's end. He recently moved to a new house, and his cable internet service provider screwed him by not providing him with cable and internet service. We found this out a couple of days ago when we tried to record and just could not get a clear signal. So Kyle scrambled to find a new spot to record from, and we did the session on my birthday three days before this episode comes out. Unfortunately, the quality still isn't great. There are points when the audio drops out or where Kyle's voice may sound garbled. I did my best to edit it so it sounded clear and worth your time to listen to. I hope you still enjoy the episode, and I'll talk to you again during the listener feedback section.
we're back, and I'm happy to welcome Kyle Benning from King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, to the show. How are you doing, Kyle? I'm great. Thanks for having me back on. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, had a great time with you talking about Shadow last couple episodes ago. Great to have you back, man. Good to be back. So always great to be a part of greatness. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, <laughs> Kyle and I are talking about Captain Comet, and... What do you think about this character, Kyle? Uh, it's a character I really like. I think he's definitely got a very interesting dynamic, and uh, unfortunately DC hasn't uh, saw fit to uh, reprint his classic, I guess I'd call it Atomic Age or uh, Silver Age stories. You know, he really kind of was a, a bit of a proto-Adam Strange mm-hmm. uh, before Adam Strange. I guess kind of chronologically he was probably DC's third popular spacefaring adventure hero to pop up after Tommy Tomorrow, who popped up in uh, the late 1940s. And then you had the Knights of the Galaxy that appeared earlier in 1951. And then Captain Comet showed up in, I want to say it was something like May 1951. Yep. And then, you know, he had a fairly constant presence in Strange Adventures through issue number 44 mm-hmm. or so, and then appeared in 46 and number 49 was his last appearance then. And that was in 1954, and then he just pretty much disappeared until the 1970s. Yeah, according to my like he dropped out of DC's publishing slate for more than 20 years. Yep. Um, and he didn't come back until Secret Society of Supervillains number 2 in 1976. Um, and he stayed with that series until its conclusion in issue 15. Um, and then his other appearances in the 70s and 80s included DC Special Series, Super Team Family, DC Comics Presents, Crisis on Infinite Earths, of course, because everybody was there, uh, and naturally All-Star Squadron because Roy Thomas just couldn't help himself but use the character. Uh, after Crisis on Infinite Earths, Captain Comet would show up frequently in DC's cosmic miniseries events, such as the Rand Thanagar Holy War and the relaunched versions of Strange Adventures and Mystery in Space. In the New 52, Captain Comet appeared in Action Comics initially as a sort of Superman villain. And then uh, eventually, the last time I saw him, he was kind of leading something like... I don't even know how to explain it. It was like it was like a pan-dimensional version of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Hmm. Um, he, it seemed like he was kind of the, the Peter Quill Star-Lord character, except without the charm and the humor and the humanity that made him likable. It was just sort of – he was the sort of human in this weird band of crazy aliens and things that only Grant Morrison could envision. But uh, I, I don't know what to do with this character. I, you said he's sort of like a proto-Adam Strange. He's kind of a proto-a lot of things. And he, it, to me, he feels sort of like a Marvel character, like Adam I Warlock can... in some ways. I could definitely see that, especially his uh, angsty vibe that he has throughout the story. Yeah, definitely um, the way Roy writes I mean, it, it's just weird that they never brought him back in the late 50s or early 60s. So, you know, he quit showing up in uh, Strange Adventures in 1954. Um, you know, Adam Strange and Space Ranger uh, popped up in those early days of Showcase in 1958. And pretty much caught on Adam Strange being more popular than Space Ranger, but Space Ranger was still fairly prominent. You know, and they had a large number of appearances then in the late 50s and early 60s. It's just kind of weird that they never brought 
Captain Comet back into publication with new stories and trying to, you know, cash in on that Spaceman dynamic. Have you read the Silver Age appearances, the ones from the 50s? The only ones I have read are the few that have been uh, reprinted. So, uh, God, he had, you know, like nearly 40 appearances there in the 50s. And as far as I can tell, uh, his origin, which appeared in uh, Strange Adventures number 9 and 10, his first two appearances, has never been reprinted. Hmm. Um, so Strange Adventures number 14 was reprinted in DC Superstars number 4, um, which I have. I have that giant. Uh, mm-hmm. I love the story in that. Um, Strange Adventures number 17 is reprinted in DC Superstars number 6. Strange Adventures number 22 is reprinted in World's Finest number 204, which I also have. And that one is also reprinted in the Mysteries in Space, the best of DC science fiction is a DC fireside book, which I have that book now, uh, thanks to little Russell Burbage sent that to me. Yeah, I heard that's it. that's one of uh, DC's three fireside book collections. Yeah, and then uh, Strange Adventures number twenty eight, that was reprinted in the greatest nineteen fifty stories ever told, hardcover and trade paperback. And then the Strange Adventures number thirty one was reprinted in the Pulp Fiction Library Mystery in Space trade paperback, which I've been trying to track that down. Uh, I think Rob Kelly had that as one of his uh, in-stock trade picks mm-hmm. for one of the uh, uh, issues of – or one of the episodes of the their Who's Who podcast that had uh, Ultra, the multi-alien, and I think that was Rob's pick. And then uh, Strange Adventures number 34 reprinted in Superman number 244. And then I think the last one was Strange Adventures number 38, and that was reprinted in Justice League of America number 80. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I think. Of those, you know, originally nearly 40 adventures that have ever been reprinted. He's never gotten the showcase treatment, unfortunately, but I don't think uh, Space Ranger or Tommy Tomorrow have either. So, in terms, of, in terms of how those stories were written, did he have any of the angst or the melodrama that was in this story, or was he more of the typical, you know, leading man from the Golden Silver Age sort of straight and narrow? Uh, there were elements of it. It wasn't as prominent as it is here. Uh, more of his stories, I think, were kind of typified by a lot of that 50s science fiction where there's that that plot twist mm-hmm. at the end, which we do see in here, where kind of that sad, ironic twist. Right. That kind of seems to be a more reoccurring element of his stories. Well, we've teased it a little bit. Uh, let's actually get into the secret origin of Captain Comet. Uh, do you want to tell our listeners how this story goes? Yeah, The Secret Origin of Captain Comet, written by Roy Thomas, with pencils by Ron Harris, and inks by Bruce Patterson. So, the story opens, it's 1951, the JSA has just disbanded after being called in front of Congress. Uh, War over the 38th parallel wages in the second year of the Korean War, and Americans on the home front fear the spread of communism on both foreign and domestic soil. When all of a sudden, a gargantuan spinning top strikes the Nevada desert, crushing everything in its path, and starts vacuuming up all the oxygen on planet Earth. The top isn't a single entity. Other strange objects of mass destruction likewise ravage the other five populated continents. The Americans pull out the big guns right away and unleash their latest atomic bomb, but it is to no avail. As the top continues to spin and destroy everything in its path, completely unscathed by the nuclear payload dropped on it. Just then, Captain Comet breaks through the barricades in Nevada and streaks towards the twisting top in his red and blue costume. 
Meanwhile, at a great university in the American Midwest, let's just say it's Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa, Professor Zachro and his students no way. University to a University of Iowa in Iowa City. Go Hawkeyes. They're not known for their science. <laughs> <laughs> They're more known for their vodka Sam. <laughs> We'll Professor Zachro and his students sit glued to the television watching Captain Comet tackle the threat. The students have no idea that this brightly clad hero is none other than their classmate, Adam Blake. However, Professor Zachro knows Captain Comet's true identity and is through his thoughts that we learn the chain of events that granted Adam his fantastic mutant powers. In the early 1930s, on one fateful night, Adam was born just as a comet streaked overhead. His father saw that as a sign that his newborn son was destined for greatness. At an early age, his magnificent power surfaced. Adam had tremendous intelligence, incredible reading speed and comprehension, as well as a photographic memory. But that wasn't all. He could also read lips, could play any musical instrument perfectly, and by the time he got to college, was at the physical peak of human perfection, eventually besting every Olympic record. Yeah, suck on it, Michael Phelps. He then developed telepathy and telekinesis powers, Zachro then deduced that Adam was a mutant, a future man, born millennia before his time. It was for this reason that he has always found himself alone and an outsider. He then aids Professor Zachro in his experiments, even finding the perfect angle of refraction to extract gold particles from sunlight. And Adam quickly routes the group of thugs that break in it and try to make off with this secret technology. From that point on, Zachro and Adam continue to help each other in secret. That is, until the threat of the mysterious spinning tops required Adam to make his first public appearance as Captain Common. I just kind of want to yell that with like a Captain Caveman type of effect. <laughs> Adam approaches the spinning death machine and quickly deduces that it is powered by an outside force, a mysterious radiomagnetic wave coming from the dark side of the moon. He quickly races back to the university and goes to furious super speed work, making Zachro's experimental space rocket functional. After hours of construction at super speed, the experimental space plane, dubbed the Cometeer, is ready for takeoff to the moon. Adam jumps aboard the ship and uses its 200,000 horsepower engine to thrust out of Earth's atmosphere to stop the alien threat. Captain Comet boards the gigantic alien spacecraft to find the alien Haroon, the leader of a race of aliens known as the Astur, waking from his stasis sleep. Telepathically, they communicate and Adam learns the terrible truth of these alien invaders. Their planet was doomed, so they ventured across the stars to find a new planet, one rich with oxygen, a gas toxic to them. So they unleashed the spinning tops to remove the oxygen from the planet so it would be suitable for the Aster to inhabit. Adam bests Haroon in a game of wits for the fate of Earth, but Haroon does not accept the loss so easily, so he hopes to use the Aster's superior numbers to defeat Adam. Haroon is then hit by the sad fate of his people, no one survived the stasis process except for him. He is the sole survivor of his race, and by his people's own laws, he must then kill himself. Great law there. <laughs> <laughs> he quickly abandons ship before Adam can stop him, and is killed by the harsh, cold vacuum of space. With no further resistance, Adam quickly shuts down the machines, saves Earth, and then sends the alien Esther ship floating off to space as a sealed tomb marking the end of a race of extinct beings. Adam returns to Earth as a hero, but he can't help but wonder how long before he finds himself once again persecuted for being different. So, I'm trying to think of what my first point is going to be, and I'm still kind of thrown back by this uh, this alien suicide at the end of the story. Yeah. I... <laughs> 
their racial battle cry is there can be only none. <laughs> That's what I was going to like. Who like which? What kind of race puts uh, the, the last one left? <clears throat> Time to end it. <laughs> what race puts thought in the that kind of forethought into a law that well, if all of us are wiped out except for one, the last survivor is really not worth saving. So he or she should just commit suicide too. Like, like, no sense of self-preservation. If that many of us, uh, many of us are desiccated, screw it. <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah, I'm thinking their society must have given rise to a lot of, like, suicidal cults. <laughs> uh, I wonder if they had, uh, I wonder if it happened before, if there had been, like, like huge, like, catastrophes where a big portion of them, like, were, like 75% of the population were wiped out, and they're like, well, should we end it? Is this is this enough? Does this qualify for us to all kill ourselves? What did you think of the art in this story? Kind of before we get to the details. I'm just going to say the art was serviceable. Uh, overall, you know, it wasn't too bad. There were a few missteps, like uh, unfortunately Harris falls into the uh, the trapping of when he draws a young Adam, he's just got that creepy adult head on a kid's body thing kind of going. Um, there's nothing overly great about it. But, you know, from a storytelling point, it, you know, there's nothing bad. You can clearly tell what's going on. It flows fairly nicely. It doesn't seem cluttered or disoriented. But, you know, there isn't anything that reaches out and grabs you and is like, oh, this is great. Or, you know, you're never really wowed by a single panel or page layout. So the only other place I know Ron Harris's pencils from are in other projects where he teamed up with Roy Thomas for – other like golden age heroes. Uh, he did the pencils on the four issue miniseries alter ego, yeah. which was Roy's attempt to update and bring some of the public domain golden age heroes in. Yeah. I actually, I, I'd never heard his name before. So I checked out, um, and he's only got about 20 credits on Mike's amazing world. And about half of them are with, uh, Roy Thomas projects, either like an issue or two of all-star squadron or infinity Inc. He did young all-stars for a little while, but I've, I've just, I, I never heard his name before. I don't know if I've even read the issues of all-star that he's done. Uh, the, the only other thing I'd, I'd say on the art is, uh, Murphy Anderson is one of the original creators on this, mm-hmm. I think, or I, oh, I guess it's actually John Broom, Carmine Infantino, but, uh, I think Murphy Anderson penciled quite a few of, of the, the early Captain Comet stories. I would have liked to see his take on it. Um, as far as sort of been towards the end of his career, but you know, at the time that this story came out, but Murphy Anderson had some really dynamic layouts when he was a penciler. I think most people probably uh, know of him as an anchor for Kurt Swan for so many years on Superman, but, uh, his pencils and page panel layout are, were just super dynamic. Some of the best DC had that would have been uh, a creator. I really would have liked to see tackle this story from an art standpoint. Yeah. And Murphy Anderson actually had a couple issues of secret origins to around this time. He had done some of the other like quality comics characters in the issues that were published, like just after this annual. So I don't know if it was a scheduling thing or if they just, nobody thought to, to put his, his talent on this. Um, it's, it's weird where this story falls in the, the Secret Origins publication timeline, because with a few exceptions, like with like Dr. Occult and Captain Marvel, Roy had been trying to put the characters more or less in chronological sequence. But up to this point, they would have been like right at like the, the, still the 1940 characters or 1941 characters. 
and now he's jumping forward to a character created in 1951. And... I wonder if he just wasn't thinking about this in the same kind of order. He just thought because this is an annual, it's a little bit different. I don't know. I, I know he included this character, but I, I still come back to this idea that it's hard for me to reconcile Captain Comet with the DC Universe characters. Because Roy is obviously doing his best to make something serviceable out of a an origin where it really feels like the original creators were playing fast and loose with his power set, because he can do everything. You know, he, he's got super strength, he's got super physical abilities, he's got super mental abilities, he's got telepathy, telekinesis, he can tell the difference in color just based on touch. Uh, like, whatever you need your character to do in a given situation, he can do it. So, yeah, he's like Superman mixed with every magic character ever. Yeah, with a little bit of like Martian Manhunter's like telepathy, and it's yeah. It, so it's kind of like uh, he's like too perfect. But the thing is, I think he can work. I think you can still make that work as a character because it's interesting. This background of having him be a mutant, I guess, somebody who's born evol- on the like two hundred years in advance of the evolutionary scale where he should be. That's still that's a really cool idea, and when you put him in the the space costume with the helmet and the gun, it, it does feel like Space Ranger or Adam Strange. These characters that I like, so I want to like it. I just think like he should be, he should be in his own pocket universe of publication that doesn't relate to the other superheroes of DC. That's that's not part of their world, like. I think he needs to be out in space on his own, just taking on crazy, completely wacky, batshit crazy type things. I think that's where he works best. As far as like recent publication, that's where he's worked best. Um, you know, around uh, Infinite Crisis, I think it was an Infinite Crisis tie-in of the, the Rand Thanagar story. Captain Comet shows up in that with, uh, I believe it's Kyle Rayner as the Green Lantern, and then Adam Strange and Hawkman. He kind of team and kicks some ass and you know, he's kind of this space legend almost mm-hmm. uh, that kind of just travels around and shows up when he's needed. And it was a huge honor for uh, the other cast, the space characters, to have him in their presence and have him, you know, assist them with the threat. And then when he's done, he goes off and does his own thing. I think that's probably where he works best. Yeah, I agree. If he's somebody, if he's, it reminds me of like, an Adam Warlock or a Silver Surfer type character whose whose powers are so beyond what people can comprehend that it's like, oh man, why don't you hang around Earth? You could like solve all of our problems in a day. And he has to have this attitude of the the stuff on my shoulders is so far beyond Earth's problems, you can't believe it. Like I think you need to make him that level and you need to put him way far out in in crazy science fiction stories. I just had a thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about the, you know, the chronologic, well, you know, why is he showing up now when, you know, 1951 jumping 10 years ahead? Yep. I wonder if this was Roy a little bit, uh, trying to blend this character with Gary Concord, the Ultraman that had, uh, early appearances, uh, 1940. I know he was in the first issue of All All Star Comics. He was one of the the features, so he was dropped by the time the the, the second issue of All Star came and replaced with you know one of the future JSAers. But that was again kind of a a hero from the future that 
had great mental and physical powers. Um, and so I wonder if Roy's kind of blending those two characters and using that. I mean, that still throws off this, this story is very clearly set in 1951. Right. But I'm wondering if by merging those two characters a little bit is why he popped it in. Maybe, you know, update wise with some of those 1940 characters. Yeah. And if you have not read that story from All Star Comics number one, you need to read that because man, is that some weird, <laughs> totally different uh, take on <laughs> propaganda from that era. Oh, I believe it. Is it just me or does Harris draw a young Adam Blake like Peter Parker? Is it me like the spit curl hair? Is it? Yeah, I could see that a little bit. Like a weird sort of early Ramita Senior style. Yeah, I can see that. Reading this, I couldn't help but think that this has, like, CW superhero TV show written all over it. I mean, this angsty, I'm alone because I'm different and powerful and these people are going to turn on me, that had, like, the first six seasons of Smallville written all over it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The pathos of this character who feels lost and alone has to hide his identity despite the fact that nobody really should be a threat to him. Um, But the, the emotional isolation, it's very much in the early Marvel style, but it's also like, yeah, this would fit well with the CW TV shows. I don't know. Other thoughts on the character? Not a whole lot. I mean, uh, uh, unfortunately there's just not a whole lot of the characters, you know, back issue or, you know, back catalog of, you know, where the story is rooted in out there available for reading. So it's hard to get a real accurate gauge of, you know, so many stories where Roy has just had really strict retellings or yeah. straight up copying of the original stories. Those, uh, you know, his original origin from uh, issue nine and ten of uh, Strange Adventures have never been reprinted. So you can't even gauge that or get a reference of how much of a copying job Roy did here. I this this feels. I I don't know. I just I. I would be surprised if it was written in the same voice back then, because this does feel much more of the time. This feels, uh, as, as you pointed out, the melodrama and the the angst that is in his voice feels much more like a 1987 story, or even like late 50s, early 60s. If the writers were doing that back in 1951, that feels extremely progressive for, for the writing of that time. Uh, but maybe. Never know. I feel kind of bad. Um, one of our listeners, Burt Barnard, on the Facebook page said he was a big Captain Comet fan. And I just, I, I don't have much to say about this character. I just, I haven't read very much. I've, I tried sampling some of the, um, like the DC Cosmic stuff that came out, like by Jim Starlin in, like around Infinite Crisis, like the Rand Thanagar War and the Holy War story that came after that. And, I, I just didn't like those stories that much, so I didn't stick with them. But I don't know. I I like the idea of this guy. I just don't know where to put him in my own headcanon or in the greater DC Universe pantheon. He just he feels like this outlier that doesn't fit. Yeah, the the best recommendation I could give to you, and I think where he best is fit is in the uh, DC special number 27 where he teams up with Hawkman and Tommy tomorrow to fight dinosaurs. (laughs) That I would like to read. 
<laughs> have to find that one. Then. It's ridiculous and it's awesome. You had so. me at he teamed up with Hawkman and Tommy tomorrow to fight dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> so that would be my highest uh, recommended reading. And I believe that is uh, reprinted in one of the volumes of the Secret Society of Supervillains. Where uh, Captain Comet was a mainstay. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to have people dig that out and and find that because that story sounds great. Uh, any final thoughts on Captain Comet? No, uh, I mean it wasn't a great. It was a pretty meh story, which they can't all be winners. And then throw back to classic comics. Some are awesome. Some are all right. And well, there really aren't that many that are that terrible from this series. So. Uh, Right. It's an enjoyable read, but uh, don't. If you're going to shell out seven bucks for this issue, do it because of the gorgeous John Byrne cover and gorgeous John Byrne Dune Patrol story. Well, that actually segues into because I know before I let you go, I know that you're a Doom Patrol fan uh, and you weren't on the Doom Patrol portion of this episode, but uh, can you add any of your own thoughts on the Doom Patrol? I really like uh, Paul Coverberg's run on Doom Patrol. Uh, it's obviously overshadowed a little bit by uh, Morrison coming in with issue 19 and taking over. And that's probably the you know most famous run of Doom Patrol is Morrison's that follows it up. So Coverberg's gets overlooked, but it definitely you know it starts right here in this origin. And I'm a huge John Byrne fan. He is my favorite comic creator, and I absolutely love his artwork in you know the the Doom Patrol story here in Secret Origins. Uh, obviously, Byrne has said a lot of dumb and controversial things <laughs> over the years. And so, um, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily like John Byrne anymore, and they've extended that uh, dislike for his personality to some of his artwork. I, I see a lot of criticisms now online of, oh, well, Byrne was never really that great. He was only good because of Austin's inks. And, well, uh, typically when I see people uh, say that I point them to this issue of Secret Origins because Byrne inks himself on this and it looks absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think it's some of his best work and a great example of how good John Byrne is when he's inking himself. So, particular favorite character among the Doom Patrol? Robot Man, for sure. Yeah. I think it felt like a throwaway question because I'm pretty sure everybody would say that. <laughs> I mean, that's that's how I feel. He's. I mean, they all have. It's just such a neat uh, mix of kind of misfits and stuff, too. I really like Negative Man and Negative Woman as well. Any other thoughts about the Doom Patrol? Nope. They they definitely are the uh, what you pay the admission price for for this issue. So yeah. <laughs> if Comet Man doesn't uh, sound like your bag, pick up the annual and uh, read the Doom Patrol story. I don't think you'll uh, be disappointed. I think you'll really enjoy that. Pretty solid story with some great art. There you go. And Bert, if you're still listening to this episode because you said you were a fan of Captain Comet, uh, write into the comments section on the Facebook page or the WordPress page and tell me more about this character. Tell me why you love him and uh, give us some more recommended readings because I really can't think of any. So. But anyway, Kyle, thank you very much for being part of the Secret Origins podcast again. Where can people find you online if they want to hear more from you? Uh, they can go to King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun. Blogspot.com. There are all my podcasts are on one feed. I've about episode over a month because I've been moving and I don't have internet right now. So uh, once I get internet set back up, uh, I have some episodes in the can that'll drop shortly after that, and hopefully I'll get back to a more regular 
uh, publishing schedule of uh, episodes. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's always fun talking to you. I look forward to having you again on the future. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Now, that wasn't so bad, was it? Certainly not after I cut out all the unusable parts. Again, I want to thank Kyle for adjusting his schedule twice and recording at the last minute under suboptimal conditions. Okay, episode 17 received Twitter favorites and retweets from Adam, Mr. Chuck Norris 789, Alan Middleton, Ange, Between the Pages, Brian Mulvey, David Gallagher, Dr. G, Nerdologist, DSNRS, Doug Zavisha, Film and Water Podcast, Greg Arujo, Paul Scavito, The Hammer Strikes, Keith G. Baker, Siskoid, and Trekker Talk. Facebook likes, mentions, and shares came from Chris Ivey, Clinton Robison, Comic Reflections, David Gutierrez, David Robles, Gotham Shiorin, Gene Hendricks, Greg Arujo, Greg Barr, The Hammer Strikes, Igor Glushkin, Jimmy McGlinchey, Keith G. Baker, Patrick Conley, Russell Burbage, Shag, Sean Engel, Sean Myers, Tim Wallace, Trevor Owen Williams, and Van Z. As always, we received a ton of great comments on the Facebook page. Uh, got a new one from Trevor Owen Williams on the post for episode one. That's when Chris and I talked about the origin of the Golden Age Superman. Trevor says, Recently discovered comic podcasts and am glad that I found yours. Loved a recent episode, so now I'm going back and starting from the beginning. I think I bought the entire run of Secret Origins as it came out, so you are bringing back some mostly good memories here. Awesome, Trevor. Thank you for the comment. I hope you continue to enjoy the podcast, and I hope you're digging the other shows that you listen to as well. Uh, There are so many great comics-related podcasts out there right now, and more starting up all the time. It's crazy, and it's exciting. On to last episode, Greg Barr said, Yay, Dr. Occult. Double yay for Adam Strange. Igor Glushkin said the episode was the highlight of his drive to and from work. That's awesome. Thank you very much, Igor. Uh, he also said Dr. Occult was his favorite character from the Superman boys. Okay. Uh, David Gutierrez talked about how Dr. Occult almost made his television debut alongside The Flash and a female Green Arrow in a show called Unlimited Justice. Uh, I remember hearing about that years ago, and I thought it was a myth or a joke, but it turns out it's real, or it was going to be real at one point before the plans changed, and I think the idea morphed into the Flash TV show from the 90s. Uh, Rob Kelly said, Great episode as always. I look forward to Professor Allen being invited on to discuss the secret origins of Iron Wolf, Claw the Unconquered, and Beowulf. Maybe even Rima the Jungle Girl. Uh, I think we're typecasting Professor Allen a little bit, but I'd really love to hear those episodes. Rob also said, nice job adding Michael Bradley to the Secret Origins rogues gallery. He has a pleasant, mellifluous voice that is calming to listen to, unlike my own harsh, joisy twang. I am jealous. Plus, Dr. Occult is super cool. I mean, what a name. Uh, Rob's manservant, the irredeemable Shag, said, Do not speak ill of the Adam Strange Planet Heist miniseries. I loved that comic. In fact, that was the first Adam Strange story I read that managed to actually capture my interest. Fun story, great art, and I loved the costume redesign. Highly recommend that trade paperback for anyone new to the character. 
Gregorujo said, While I was first introduced to Adam Strange in a reprint in Action Comics 437, it is the two-part story in Justice League 120 and 121 which left a stronger impression. The cliffhanger, in which Borg disintegrated the League, leaving only their costumes, confused five-year-old me, because I couldn't understand why not only Black Canary's costume had remained intact, but her hair as well. <laughs> what a coincidence. I was also five when I learned the carpet doesn't always match the drapes. That's crazy. Clinton Robinson said, in regards to Adam Strange's costume needing an update, why was there no discussion of his appearance in Season 2 of Young Justice? I found myself greatly enjoying the hooded coat look that paid great homage to the classic color scheme and design. Well, the reason we didn't discuss it is because I never saw it until Clinton pointed it out. I had no idea Adam Strange appeared in Young Justice. I only watched the first couple episodes. But I consulted the Googles, and I saw images of Adam Strange from Season 2, and I really like it. It's not the original design that I prefer, but the hooded look is actually really cool. It's not my first choice, but I wouldn't reject it either. So, cool. Thank you for putting that on my radar. Okay, on to the WordPress page. First comment came from Nathaniel Wayne from Council of Geeks, who says, It is interesting that they paired together characters from different pulp genres, both of whom don't seem to be able to translate well to modern stories for various reasons. Personally, I like the sound of the Doctor Occult story, and I like how complete it sounds. Often it feels like these stories are treated as exposition dumps, meant to do little more than make readers go, oh, okay, so that's the deal with this character, but not actually tell a satisfying story in and of themselves. This one, and Adam Strange to a lesser extent, sounded like it was a complete proper story that just happened to be the origin story. This might be a symptom of the characters not being current at the time that it was published, and writers do not have to leave it on the, and now you can follow their current titles note. Yeah, I think the Adam Strange origin felt a lot more complete because it was reprinting his first appearance, which was really two stories, or two chapters, so you do get much more of a realized adventure with his story. And because Dr. Occult really had no origin, Thomas and Bridwell had to make it up, so they crafted the backstory that could seamlessly link to a specific story from the Golden Age, and it feels more... full, I guess? Yeah, I, I, that's the only way that I can explain it. Uh, by the way, folks, Council of Geeks is now a podcast that you can download on iTunes. Right now, it's only a few episodes talking about movies. I've been a guest on one of them. But coming up in the near future, Nathaniel's going to release a comics-related podcast, and I think you're going to like it. Uh, when he told me the idea, I got really, really excited. I won't say much more than that because it's not out yet, but if you like 90s comics or you hate 90s comics, or you love to hate 90s comics, I think you'll get a kick out of the new podcast, and I will be sure to plug it here on Secret Origins when the first episode drops. Up next, Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast commented on the infamous t-shirt. I thought some of the images might have been by other artists besides Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praised be his name. But Chris said, the shirt does exist, and that's all JLGL. PBHN artwork, with inks by Dick Giordano. Garcia Lopez did seem to take some visual cues on his Robin from Perez, but there are subtle differences, mostly in the laces and belt, as Perez usually gave Dick more laces and capsules on his belt a la Burt Ward. 
As for the comic itself, Chris said, The Infantino Disniga combo is odd, one of those great tastes that don't really taste great together things. I just listened to an episode of Pop Culture Affidavit where Tom Panarese and Andy Leyland discussed the V comic based on the TV series, and those two artists got paired there as well. DC was hot on putting heavy inkers on their older artists in the 80s and early 90s, and it didn't always work. Just look at the succession of inkers they burdened poor Jim Aparo with. Uh, Chris continued, I remember when Roy revived Dr. Occult in the mid-80s, it seemed like he was going to get a big push, and it just kind of fizzled out with a handful of appearances. I did like those Superman stories from the 90s, Michael pointed out. As a big fan of the Superman and Batman podcast, it was great to hear him on here. Completely agree, uh, and people, if you're not listening to the Supermates podcast currently, then you're missing out on House of Frankenstein, which is a crying shame because the show is so much fun. Everything you love about Chris and Cindy Franklin talking about Batman plus classic horror movies. Beautiful stuff. Go listen. Jeff Nettleton said, Adam Strange was a character I encountered in the very first issue of Justice League of America that I ever read. Loved the red flight suit and costume, and the fact that he used his brain first. Of course, he is purely John Carter, mixed with descendants of Flash Gordon and a bit of Buck Rogers, and Alana is his Deja Thoris, even more than Warlord and Tamara. When I got to see some of Adam's own comics, I was blown away. Carmine Infantino was at his zenith on those books, throwing every influence he had in them. They were extremely inventive and wonders of both the eye and the brain. And the dude can rock a fin. That 90s Adam Strange was a bleak, awful slog. Adam Strange was a bright, optimistic series, and that book epitomized everything wrong with the grim and gritty approach that was being applied to everyone. The 2000s series was okay, but it didn't wow me like the old stories and his guest appearances on JLA. James Robinson made great use of Adam, both in the Stars My Destination storyline and afterwards. Robinson remembered to have Adam use his brain and presented him as a true swashbuckling hero, straight out of Edmund Hamilton or Leigh Brackett, or Edgar Rice Burroughs. As for Lucas and Spielberg, this is what Kingdom of the Crystal Skull should have been. Indy is transported to Ran, and everything unfolds from there. Wow. Uh, I was just using those guys as a for instance, but now I'm actually picturing an Indiana Jones movie with an Adam Strange plot. Whew. All right. Jeff R. said, Most of the dark 90s Adam Strange concept comes directly from the two-part guest appearance in Alan Moore's Small Schieger, excuse me, Swamp Thing, which I wish one of you had read or mentioned, which was an excellent story narrated about half in English and half in Ranese, which Moore invented for the story, not a full-on conlang, but a word-level coded English, which is at least a step up from the character-level ciphers one usually sees in comics. I sort of hope someone who remembers more than two words of it will comment entirely in Ranese. Well, good luck, Jeff. Maybe when one of us does a Swamp Thing or Adam Strange podcast. And I'm seriously hoping somebody does. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, I am not a big fan of Adam Strange. He's kind of nothing special. Okay, I'm skipping the rest of Ange's comment because it offends me. No, I'm kidding. Not every character is for every fan. For example, I still don't care about the Legion of Superheroes, or most of the new Teen Titans, which is why I'm abdicating my position as host of the show on the Legion episodes. Rob Kelly is going to take over for me. Uh, Ange goes on, I'm surprised Ryan missed commenting on the Adam Strange comic by Paul Pope in Wednesday Comics. God, every time! 
I always forget about Wednesday's comics. That Paul Pope story was awesome. Anyway, Inch talked about Dr. Occult a little bit and said, Great episode and discussion as always. Look forward to next week's look at the annual, an issue that gets a 5-star rating from me. Well, Ange, I hope this episode came close to meeting your expectations. Michael Chiaroscuro said, The romantic longing hook of the story between Alana and Adam was always cool to me. And I'm going to channel Shag here for a minute and state that Alana is hot. Seriously, if you're going to name-check beautiful DC woman, she has to make that list. I tend to forget about her because of her C or D list status, but it's clear why Adam longs for her when that damn Zeta beam whisks him away all the time. Now I need to find some of those old stories and check those out. And Michael also mentioned the Adam Strange story from Alan Moore's Saga of the Swamp Thing. I need to reread that. I forgot all about that story. Uh, About Dr. Occult, Michael said, His origin here seems convoluted, but maybe I just focus too much on the ridiculous aspect of him being named Doc, and then working to get a PhD so he could rightly continue calling himself Doc. Seriously? Yeah, seriously, Michael. Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I've always adored Adam Strange, and I don't get the constant comments about his retroness being a problem. That original look is sleek, perfect, classic. Every update simply looks clunky, referencing the original while never approaching the glory of it. And while I'm as gay as the next guy, if he's, like, you know, gay, the original Alana was hot. The latest version looks like a man by comparison. Alana was great in that she was more a partner than a damsel in distress, and respected by Adam. Adam was great because he always solved problems with his brains, while flying around zapping beasties with his ray gun. No update was needed. Alan Moore needed a severe slap for twisting Sardath's motivations. As for that Richard Bruning prestige series, with Alana dying and Adam hooking up with that Mavis Trenta-like tart, ugh, glad that was roundly retconned away again. I agree Doc Occult was good in Superman, and I think he might make for a fun TV show if Rose were treated as a proper partner, and we saw plenty of that groovy disc. Has no one at DC ever done anything else with the Seven? Maybe a DC Cult Wars crossover involving the Nanda Parbat lot, the Cobra Bunch, and Rajal Ghul's mob. Mind, as Rajal Ghul and Cobra bore me rigid, I'd not be buying. Well, you might not, Martin, but I'd be all over that. And finally, Paul Hicks from the podcast Waiting for Doom said, I'll join the ranks of those who love Adam Strange but agree he does lack that killer modern story. I got really excited about the second feature until I realized I was mentally preparing for the origin of a different Doctor, one Terrence 13. I would have liked to have talked about Doctor 13 for a bit. Oh well. Sorry, Paul, I guess you just have to wait even longer for that podcast. And that's going to be all for this episode, folks. Once again, I want to thank my guests, Doug Zavisha and Kyle Benning, for coming back after I said some horrible things about them on Instagram. Feedback can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or at blackcanaryfan or the username countdrunkula. You can also email your feedback to blackcanaryfan at gmail.com and please let me know if the message is private and you don't want it to be read on a future episode. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.
Chapter 1, Challenge of the Timeless Commander. General Amortus mustn't get his evil hands on that alien ship. Execute Plan 3, Doom Patrol. We're way ahead of you, Chief. <laughs> Chapter 2. 